You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. everybody and welcome back to another episode of for the record with tess heard i'm tess heard and this is for the record i hope that you all are having an incredible week and an even more incredible friday or whatever day you're listening to this on maybe you're not a friday person maybe you like to listen to your true crime on mondays maybe it helps you get you through your monday blues maybe you like it midway through the week Maybe you like your true crime on Tuesdays, and that's okay. We're just glad to have you here. So thank you so much for coming by and giving us a listen. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. If you've listened to previous episodes, then you know I do an episode every once in a while called Hometown Horrors, which highlights a case in or around a small hometown. While I've been able to cover a few of these cases, some of them don't have enough information to do full episodes on. Some of them are still unsolved to this day. So in this episode, we're going to talk about four different cases, all of which occurred in or around Lawrence County, Tennessee, and all of them are unsolved. It is my hope that by taking some time to talk about this, these cases on this podcast, that someone who knows something will hear it and will be compelled to tell someone what they know, giving these families the answers they so desperately need. So without further ado, this is Hometown Horrors Unsolved. Our first case is going to take us back to the year of 1979. Cynthia, better known as Cindy, was born September 20th, 1960. She was the oldest of eight children, paving the way for her younger siblings. She was a smart, beautiful young girl and thrived doing whatever she did. After graduating from high school in 1978, Cindy married her high school sweetheart, whose name was not mentioned in any of the articles that I found, and they were happily living life as newlyweds. Cindy was working at the local Long John Silver's, a seafood restaurant located in the middle of town. If you don't know what Long John Silver's is, basically it's like Captain D's, only not nearly as good. Cindy enjoyed her job, and it was perfect for a 19-year-old newlywed. Everything was going extremely well for Cindy. She was married. She and her husband, I imagine, had a cute little house somewhere in town. They were young and in love, and she had a job. And from everything that I could find, she really just got along with all of her coworkers and just had 
a really good life. All of that would change, though, on October 23rd, 1979. It was a cold night in October, something that I personally miss because now it's still 80 degrees most days in October. But anyway, Cindy was working the closing shift at Long John Silver's. And after closing the restaurant, the employees were tasked with taking the deposit from that day to the bank and dropping it in the drop box. For the safety of the employees, both closing employees were to go to the bank together to make the deposit drop. When I worked at Dollar General, I was told that this is how they used to do it. Both of the closing employees would uh, follow each other to the bank to make sure that, you know, you didn't get mugged or kidnapped or killed or something. But then they switched it to where the opening manager would take the deposit in the morning, which I think is so much better and a lot safer. And I think that this story just kind of validates that. But what happened to Cindy may or may not have been related to her deposit drop that night. At around 1.50 a.m. the following morning, Cindy's husband woke up after falling asleep while watching the football game. When he realized that Cindy still wasn't at home, he called 911 to report her missing. Her family was notified, and they immediately knew something was wrong. It was not like Cindy not to come home, or at least not to call if she was going to be late, even as an adult. Police began searching the area, and they found Cindy's car located just half a mile away from her home. You could see her house from where her car was parked, but Cindy was nowhere to be found. Searches continued, but it wouldn't be until two weeks later until her body would be found. Hunters in a remote area of Lawrence County had discovered her body while out in the woods. While po when police arrived, they noticed that Cindy's body had been attempted to be covered up, although not exceptionally well. It was also obvious that she had been murdered, but... I couldn't find a cause of death listed anywhere in any of the articles that I found. No other evidence was found near or around Cindy's body. The case remains unsolved to this day. Questions were raised about Cindy's husband's involvement, but charges were never pressed. Since then, he has moved out of the state and no other information can be found. One of Cindy's sisters, Lisa, is still fighting for justice for her big sister. The family still doesn't know what happened. There's nothing to give any indication as to who may have done this to her, why they would have done this to her, or how it happened. She literally dropped off the deposit at the bank with her coworker. They said their goodbyes, and then Cindy was never seen alive again. And I know that this happened in 1979, but there has to be somebody out there who knows something to this day. Like, there has to be. 
in an interview, the district, oh, I don't even know what the title is, the, 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 the DA, I think, had said that Cindy's case had been reopened, but since the time of her murder, the apparently the police station has moved, they've lost evidence, witnesses and people have passed away, and this just may be a case. He didn't say this part, but this is just my opinion. This really unfortunately may be a case where there never is answers. So if you have any information in regards to Cindy Kilburn's murder in 1979, anything at all, any information at all, you may not think that it's relevant. You may think that it's just something silly that doesn't deserve to be told to the police. You know, maybe you or someone you know saw her driving home that night, or you saw her in her car half a mile away from her home. Even if you don't think that's important, please still call the Lawrenceburg Police Department at 931-762-2276. Our next case is one that I've covered before on the podcast, but I want to bring some more attention to it. This is a case that I will probably highlight a lot because I want to see answers found for the family. This upcoming weekend, Saturday, August 19th, is going to be the seven-year anniversary of this young man's disappearance. His family is still desperately looking for answers, trying to find anything that may lead to something that could point them in any kind of direction as to where Jansen Brewer is at or what happened to him. Jansen Brewer was born June 29, 1989. He was a native of Summertown, Tennessee, and had a huge love for all things football and outdoors, especially fishing. Jansen was a son, a brother, a father, and a friend. His kids were his entire world, and he wouldn't go a day without calling them to check in and say hi. He was the same way with his mom. He always had to call his mom and check in with her every single day. But when the phone call stopped one day, the mother of his children and the rest of his family knew something was very wrong. On August 19th, 2016, Jansen was supposed to go fishing with his brother, Joshua, and some of their friends. One of those friends being Daniel Sean Breeden. Joshua had been called into work that day, but had sent a message to 
message to Jansen on Facebook Messenger telling him he wouldn't be able to make it, but that there were worms in his mom's refrigerator and he was welcome to get them. Jansen read the message, but never responded. That would be the last time that anyone had any contact with Jansen. After not hearing from Jansen for a day, the family went to the police department wanting to file a missing persons report, but they were told they had to wait 72 hours before doing so, which is such crap, by the way. I mean, really? Anxiously, the family waited the 72 hours, hoping to hear from Jansen or have him walk through the door or something. But once the clock hit the 72-hour mark, the family returned to file a missing persons report. Police began searching, but nothing was found leading to the whereabouts of Jansen or his friends. Jansen's cell phone was found in a yard in the suburb of, in a suburb of Lawrenceburg called New Prospect near the airport, but it was completely destroyed and further damaged due to rain that had fallen previously. The family has been told that Jansen was killed over drugs, which, according to his other brother, Josh, Josh and Joshua are not the same person, by the way. Uh, but according to his brother, Josh, Jansen didn't use drugs. The family was also told that he had been killed and his body was fed to hogs on a local farm. A team of cadaver dogs searched the farm and there was no evidence. The family has also been told that Jansen was killed and his body was put in a cave somewhere. Josh told me that he searched every cave he can find with no luck on finding Jansen's body. Like I said, the 19th of August will make seven years since Jansen went missing. His case remains unsolved to this day. Jansen was last seen in Lawrenceburg driving a silver Ford Ranger with a sidestep bed. Jansen's family is still searching for answers, and it seems as if local law enforcement has all but given up on the case. And Jansen deserves justice. His family says there is no way he would have just taken off and left his kids with no further contact. His kids were his entire world, and he would never have left them behind without a plan to stay in contact or see them regularly. It's also been reported that Jansen and Daniel Sean Braden took off to somewhere in Florida because Braden had ties to Florida, but police have investigated that and they've been in contact with Florida detectives and there has been no evidence whatsoever that puts Jansen and Braden in near or around the Florida area, let alone outside of the state. No traffic cams, no, no, no tower cams, not anything has picked up on the vehicle that Jansen was driving or Daniel Sean Braden's vehicle. 
So if you know anything, anything at all, just like I said with the last case, you may not think it's important. You may think that it is totally and completely insignificant, but it could be what points the police in the direction. It could be something that gets the ball rolling and turns Jansen's case from cold to boiling hot. So if you have any information whatsoever at all, please contact the Lawrenceburg Police Department at 931-762-2267. Our next case takes us back to September of 1987. A local farmer was out in his field searching for his lost cattle. Instead of finding his cattle, though, he stumbled upon something that would shock him and leave him in disbelief. On the bank of the Four Mile Creek laid the body of 34-year-old Danny Wells. Danny had been beaten and stabbed in the back of the head three times. The stab wounds would be determined to be his cause of death. There was no other evidence surrounding Danny. There was nothing on his body or anything that would indicate what exactly happened other than his wounds. And so police obtained a search warrant to Danny's home to try and find out what happened to him. When they entered the Prosser Road trailer, they immediately knew that this was more than just a murder. In a report, the police said that the home wasn't completely ransacked, but the front door was unlocked, the TV was still on, and several cabinets and drawers had been pulled open, like whoever had been in the home was searching for something. Not robbery searching for something, but searching for something specific. It was also noted that there was a one gram bag of cocaine found on the coffee table in the living room. As police searched the rest of the home, they walked into another gruesome discovery. It was another body, that of 27-year-old Julia Todd Keaton. She was found in the bedroom and had been beaten and bludgeoned to death and had suffered a fractured skull. The couple had been known to dabble in drugs, and when police found the cocaine, their immediate hypothesis was that they had been killed due to drugs, specifically drug trafficking. However, they said that they couldn't rule out something domestic, but I don't see how they could say it was domestic whenever Danny was stabbed in the back of the head and was found half a mile away from his home in a creek bed. But what do I know? I'm not an investigator. So... Something that's very obviously known is that Lawrence County is known to be a drug town. It's 
very widely known. And there have been more deaths and killings and everything due to drugs than anything else as far as I know. So to have a couple killed because of drugs really wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, honestly, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that these two people lost their lives and no one has ever been charged with their murder. Like there's a possibility that the person that murdered Danny and Julia, they, they could still be walking freely to this day. And the same goes with Cindy Kilburn and whatever happened with Jansen Brewer, whether he was killed or, you know, just taken off somewhere. If something did happen to him, the person who did it is getting away. They're walking free. Or even if they're behind bars, they're not paying for the crime that they committed and taking the life of these people, you know? So, again, if you know anything, anything at all, about the murders of Danny Wells and Julia Todd Keaton, please call the Lawrenceburg Police Department at 931-762-2276. Our final case comes out of Mount Pleasant, Tennessee in 2002. This case was suggested by Dale Dawson a few weeks ago. And that's why I covered Charles Sharp III, but apparently I covered the wrong Charles Sharp. And while that was an interesting case to cover, the case of Charles Shorty Sharp is, like the rest of these cases mentioned today, unsolved. Charles Shorty Sharp was a small man, standing at only 4 feet 4 inches tall and only weighing around 88 pounds. He was known to the community by the name of Shorty because of his small stature. Shorty was 54 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was disabled and was unable to work or drive. He lived with his father on Goodlow Street in Mount Pleasant and was last seen by his father sleeping on the couch. On August 23, 2002, Shorty's father had left the house, and when he returned, Shorty was gone. His brother, Donald Sharp, said, quote, Something came up, I guess. I don't know what it was or who it was, but somebody had to get him and carry him off. According to an article by News 2, investigators had considered his case a missing persons case, but after the case was reopened in 2015, they now believe that Shorty was murdered. His social security card, bank cards, and any other personal information have not been seen since his 2002 disappearance. There have also been no sightings of him anywhere. While there have been new leads in the case... There has not been any leads that have brought any real answers. 
Two leads from when they reopened the case in 2015 did lead investigators to search for remains near Arrow Mile Arrow Mines Road, but there were no reports saying if anything actually came from that. There were two persons of interest after the reopening of the case, but again, there have not been any further reports on what has happened to him. Shorty had a very close-knit group of friends who miss him dearly. They would go hunting and fishing together, and they really miss their hunting partner. His friends and family held a prayer vigil for Shorty on the Mount Pleasant Square in March of 2016. Family and friends, law enforcement, and members of the community came together and shared fond memories of Shorty and their hopes in Sunday finding closure in his disappearance. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of what happened to Shorty Sharp, please call the Mount Pleasant Police Department at 931-379-7703. I know that one didn't have a ton of information to it, but I hope that it at least is going to bring a little bit of light to his case and maybe hopefully find some answers for his family. And that is going to conclude this episode of Hometown Horrors. Like I said, all these cases are unsolved and the families are all still searching for answers. I can't imagine what it's like going through losing a loved one like this, not knowing what happened or where they are. I know I only have a small following here, but I believe that if the right person hears these cases, they'll be inclined to share any information they may have. If you have any information but don't want to call the police, send me an email at fortherecordwithme at gmail.com and I will pass the information along to the proper channels. Thank you all so much for listening this week. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or the follow button on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And make sure to hit the notification bell so that you'll be notified when new episodes drop. Also, feel free to leave a five-star review because you know that really helps your girl out. If you aren't already, go follow us on Facebook. The link is in the show notes. And go join our new fan group, The Record Keepers, on Facebook. You'll get sneak peeks of the cases we're covering each week, discussion posts for each case, and there's a dedicated place to submit cases you'd like to hear on the show. And I may or may not decide to go live sometimes to talk to you guys about the cases for whatever week we're on. All right, guys. Thanks again for listening. And until next week, the record will so reflect. <laughs>